Hey everyone, this is Sunny. I just wanted to give you a quick heads up before we started. Uh, this episode ended up getting split into two episodes because I went very long with Rod. He had a lot of interesting things to say. Um, but next week we'll be talking about uh, The Outpost. This week we're talking about his early careers and his careers before film, what he did before he became a director and a showrunner and all that good stuff. Um, so listen to this. Uh, come back next week for talk about The Outpost. And uh, please share this with friends. I think this, this is one of our one of our best episodes. Uh, if you liked uh, what we did with with Jake Tapper and uh, Zach Penn, I think you'll love this. So please forward it along to somebody if you if you listen and you like it. Okay. <laughs> Back to the Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. I am Sonny Bunch. I'm very, very pleased to be joined today by Rod Lurie. Uh, Rod is the director of The Outpost, and we're going to be talking about that uh, quite a bit more later on. Um, but I want to I want to talk a little bit about his his earlier career. Now, Rod uh, mm -hmm. is the the he directed The Contender, The Last Castle, Straw Dogs, uh, the remake of Straw Dogs, and and The Outpost. As I mentioned, he's also uh, created several television shows. Uh, we can talk about those in, in a bit as well. Um, but I want to talk about your pre-movie and TV career. Okay. What, what did you What did you do before you were uh, a a big time director and writer of Hollywood features and, and television shows? Well, how many years before? <laughs> I've had a couple of careers. Exactly, exactly. No, I'm I'm very I'm very curious. So you went you went to West Point. Yes. Uh, you were born in you were born in Israel. You come you come to America. You go to West Point, mm -hmm. uh, and then after and then you're in the military. What do you do in the military? Tell 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 us a little bit about I, that. I was an air defense officer, and I was based in uh, Gießen, Germany, with uh, you know with the two two uh, air defense artillery unit there, and I was um, in charge of the Hawk missile system, or one of those one of the lieutenants uh, in charge of the Hawk missile system, protecting the skies of Germany from the bad guys. Yeah. That was back in, you know, in the mid 1980s, right. and, you know, a long time ago now. Yeah. 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 Um, and then after you get you get out of the military and you go into journalism. Yeah. You know, I, I it's, it's really it's really interesting, um, Sonny. When I was on a plane coming back from Germany, knowing that my military career was coming to an end, I took out a piece of paper and I just sort of plotted what my career path was going to be. And with the end goal of becoming a movie director, that, that mm -hmm. was it. And I sat up and I said, you know, um, the, the path is very simple. I'm going to become a film critic uh, and I'm going to be an entertainment writer and I'm going to become, you know, well known in that world. And I'm going to uh, become a little infamous and, and then people will want to read my screenplays. and I'll become a, a screenwriter and a director. And little did I know that this path was has simply never been taken in the United <laughs> States. I mean, there have been a few people that have written about film and written film essays like Bogdanovich and Paul Schrader. Mm -hmm. But in terms of people who were film critics on a weekly basis, you know, just, you know, the reviews, you do one review or two or three reviews a week at the film's opening, that had never happened. And and I learned pretty quickly why that never happened. Um, when, you know, after I'd been a critic for many years and had uh, gotten through the ranks, I was with the Greenwich News, ended up with Los Angeles Magazine and then with KBC Radio. And there were people that wanted to have nothing to do with me. Mm -hmm. You know, they were, I, there was um, maybe a bit jumping ahead of myself, but Bill, Bill Paxton, I, I wanted to get him into, into the contender. And he said, sure, let's meet. And he asked me to meet him at the Peninsula Hotel. And, and I showed up there at 9 a.m. And I showed, up, I showed up there, Sonny. And it was 9 a.m. And he was already there and he had finished his breakfast. It was done. And 
I got there and I said, so, Bill, am I late? He goes, nope, you're on time. And he said, I just wanted, I just wanted to meet with you to tell you to go fuck yourself. And <laughs> what, what had you, what yeah. had you written? <laughs> well, because he remembered the line exactly, I remembered it ever since. It was for a movie called The Dark Backward. I'd written in Los Angeles magazine, something to the effect of, um, if you can take someone's driving license away for bad driving, you can take their SAG card away if they make a movie like this. And he was like unbelievably offended by it. And the truth is, he's a he was a wonderful, wonderful actor. And we actually eventually became friends. But he didn't take the role in the Contender. And um, over the next after, over the next few years, we talked about stuff that we we could do together. Mm. We got over that, but it was uh, it was it was pretty harsh. I, I've got to say, I that I mean that is uh, that is both very funny and also uh, a terrifying nightmare uh, for somebody who spends <laughs> spends their has spent their career writing about uh, yeah. film and actors and, well, yeah. and directors. And it's not this. It's, he's not the only one. I had a similar experience with Kenneth Branagh, although he agreed to do a, a project that ultimately ultimately never happened. But you know, he remembered my review of Frankenstein. And you, mm. on the on the other hand, Sonny, on the other hand. Um, when you when you meet an actor and tell them how much you love them and love their work, like I did with Joan Allen, they'll say, "Yes, I know." <laughs> you know, you have yeah. been spawning over me for years, and you you sort of need to stop. It's almost like you're carrying a, a copy of Catcher in the Rye with you, and you know, I'm scared to meet you. Yeah. So, so yeah, so I, I was a film critic and you know and uh, investigative journalist as well. I and. Um, you know, eventually started, um, eventually found someone who wanted to make a movie that I, that I had written mm-hmm. and a person who knew me very little, which was good. <laughs> well, let's talk about that a little bit. How do you make that transition? I mean, are you just, I assume you're, you know, writing scripts and screenplays in your, in your spare time and then just kind of putting out feelers. Did I, did you have an agent? Was it just, no, you I, just I somebody a screenplay or no, I, I did not have any, by the way, Sonny, be honest. Have you written screenplays? Uh, maybe one or two. Yeah. There's no such thing as anyone in our business that has me in the screenplay. <laughs> and, you know, I'd written a few and it was like sort of going nowhere. And then I'll, I'll tell you the story. It's really, it's an amazing story. So I had a film class. I, I showed movies. I brought the filmmakers to, um, to come and speak to the class. And so I was showing a movie called Murder in the First. So with uh, Kevin Bacon, mm-hmm. Ariel sure. Oldman, Kristen Slater, and the director Mark Rocco comes, and I say to uh, the director Mark Rocco, you know, we got along pretty well. I was one of the very few people who gave it a positive review. I think it's a very good film, by the way. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Would you read a screenplay of mine?" Which uh, I'm such an asshole, right? Because <laughs> you know, they, they people now I know we just don't want to hear that. You yeah, know? yeah. Like because there's so many of them. Anyway. Um, I go to his office. I give him the screenplay. Okay. The next day, I get a phone call from his assistant. And the assistant asked to meet me for lunch. And the assistant said to me, and actually, by the way, it's more like a partner of his. Mm-hmm. It was a Phil McKeon, the, the guy who used to be an actor on the show, Alice. He's passed away since. He said to me, I read your screenplay. I took it out of Mark Rocco's garbage can. <laughs> like Mark made a point of throwing it away. Here's an yeah. asshole critic has given me a screenplay. And he said, I think the screenplay is amazing. And I want to give it to uh, Mark's partner, Mark Friedman, to see if he might be interested. Can I have your permission? And I said, yeah, sure. 
and he gave it to Mark Friedman, who had uh, produced Murder Than First, had produced Stargate, was one of the founders of Canal Plus. Sure. He read it and he said, I want to make this movie. And I couldn't believe it. All of a sudden, I'm in the, I'm, I'm, I'm in the business. Now, we couldn't make that movie come together. It's called mm-hmm. Pork Chop. Uh, very politically incorrect film, especially now. But Mark believed in me. Uh, Mark Friedman believed me in me as a writer. And he said, I'm going to give you $5,000 a month to sit in that office and write until you come up with something. And eventually we did. We came up with um, a small movie called Deterrence, mm-hmm. um, an $800,000 movie. And uh, again, here it was very interesting how we raised the money, but we raised the money for this really tiny film. And again, you know, it, it came in sort of a weird way, but we made it. Well, I, I want to talk about raising money because raising money is always, you know, every anybody can write a script, uh, mm. as as I know, uh, and and you know, it does. It, 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 but getting the thing on film, getting getting yeah. people together and and getting getting it actually made is the tricky part. So I I, re- I rewatched the the Contender this weekend, right. um, and it was it was very interesting because it is it's a DreamWorks film, but it's a DreamWorks distributed film. And there's a lot of production logos that come ahead of that, um, which leads me to believe that there was a lot of cobbling together of funding to get the, to get this thing made. (laughs) Yes. Well, first of all, it it was a DreamWorks film because DreamWorks bought it. Okay. Steven Spielberg's mother, his mother heard about it and wanted to see it. He showed her at his house. He sat with her and he called up, he called, uh, you know, Mark Friedman, my partner the next day and said, Told him that he wanted to buy the film for DreamWorks. Yeah, and but uh, the way that it got cobbled together was that I was again a film critic, and I was giving Joan Allen her award for best uh, supporting actress for Pleasantville at the you know at our at our luncheon or dinner, mm-hmm. and I said when I was up there, you know, I should write a movie for Joan Allen because if she makes the movie, it's going to be good. She doesn't make bad movies, and she told me, and her agent told me, yeah, write it. We'll look at it. And so I went home that weekend, not even knowing what the story was going to be. And I wrote it over the weekend and I sent it to her on Tuesday. And on Thursday, she agreed to make the movie. It was just Mm -hmm. like, whoa, that's really unbelievable. And I thought, Sonny, that I was in like Flint. You know, I got this Academy Award nominated actress. She's been nominated a couple of times now. And, uh, you know, for Nixon and and for um, The Crucible and. Mm-hmm. Should have been nominated for the Ice Storm, and but then I found out nobody was going to make a movie with Joan Allen, mm-hmm. but they did read it, and so all the a, a bunch of studios um, offered to make the movie, and they let me direct it if I gave it to Sharon Stone or Michelle Pfeiffer to play the lead role, okay. so, uh, playing a woman who's going to be the vice president of the United States. It's caught in a sex scandal, and and. Um, but I, I had committed to Joan, and I just—I really thought she was the best actor in the world at the point, at that point, and probably still, probably still is in my mind. Um, and so then, you know, they said, "Well, we can finance it, say a bunch of these independent financiers, if you get somebody else." Now, by the way, this is the bane of existence for independent uh, film financing: is yeah. you get the actor, and then they say, "But well, we need somebody else now." Yeah, and so. Um, I offered the role of the president to Paul Newman. He wouldn't read it. And Mark Friedman, my producing partner, came in and he said that um, Jeff Bridges' lawyer happened to read it. And he thinks Jeff might do it. But Jeff is the dude. He's not a president. Yeah. Right? 
And I right. went to Santa Barbara. He was in this big Lebowski outfit. I, I don't mean <laughs> big Lebowski like he was wearing the exact costume from the big Lebowski. Yeah. He explained to me over six white Russians that he consumed all by himself. <laughs> that um, uh, th- that Lebowski wore his clothes, not the other way around. Okay. But he was in because he loved Joan and he had made Tucker. And so now we said, we got Jeff, we got Joan. And they said, no, you still need, you still need somebody else. One and more. One more. <laughs> and Mark Friedman, because of Merlin the First, had a relationship with Gary Oldman. And we gave it to Gary Oldman's manager, Douglas Urbanski, who took it on a plane with him to France or, or to London, I should say. He was, I think he was on in France. And, um, he called us from, from the plane, Doug said, saying, Gary's in. And we said, how is Gary in? He said, I just read it to him over the phone from the plane, and he's in. And that gave us um, the money to to make that film. A company yeah. called um, Cinerenta in Germany. You know, remember, my partner had these relationships from, sure. you, know, you know, relationships, very, very important part of all this. And you have to know. How, how to work them. And you really have to have game plans. I mean, you just, it's very difficult to, to win in this business. You have to have uh, an approach. I can tell you another quick story. Yeah, please. Which is that my very first film was this $800,000 movie called Deterrence, which was not released when I was putting together The Contender. So I didn't have the benefit of having had a movie in, in release. And there was a, a French company called TF1. And I happened to be sitting with one of the the big bosses there now i played poker with kevin pollack mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and i said to them i said to this guy his name was maurice leblanc if i can get kevin pollack into a movie and he had just unusual suspects right right how much money would you put into that movie and he had an answer he said eight hundred thousand dollars <laughs> so now i had to come up with an eight hundred thousand dollar movie that Kevin Pollack would do. I didn't know what it was going to be. So I began thinking, remember, you have to have a plan, Sonny. you got to, you know, you got to, this, yeah. this is battle planning. This is where it's good to have a military background. <laughs> I, so I said, what kind of role would Kevin Pollack never be offered? And that is the president of the United States in a drama. Like the real, not a comedy, not a comedy, yeah. not a joke. And, I went home and I wrote the first half of the screenplay and I brought it to the poker game and I said, I think I can make this movie with you. Read the first half. Tell me if I should write the second half. And he called me the next day. He said, go ahead and do it, man. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. They, they were true to their word. They gave me $800,000 to make an 18 day shoot set in one location with, yeah. you know, he's playing, um, a Jewish president who becomes president with his elevated as vice president to make all the incredible. Yeah. So, you know, it's game plans, man. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that's really interesting because it, it like, it, again, the, the, the trick here is always getting the money. That's, that's yeah. the, that's the hard thing uh, about mm-hmm. getting any movie made. And um, it never, so- it never ends by the way. It never ends, you know. Well, I, I think we're going to talk about that a lot more with with the outpost because I think right. there's a there's a lot of there's there's an interesting story there. Can we talk about the last castle just for uh, just for a minute? Because I I really I I again I watched it I rewatched it this weekend and I I love that movie and I love mm-hmm. the cast. I mean the cast is the cast of this movie is so good. Mm-hmm. Not just of course 
you know, Robert Redford and, and James Gandolfini, but guys like Clifton Collins, you know, right. before he yeah. was, before he was, you know, well-known yeah. uh, or Mark Ruffalo before he was well-known. I mean, yeah. it's just a really, uh, how do you, how, what is what is your process there? Like, I'm sure you have a casting director, et cetera, but you you're still there making the calls on these guys. How do you how do you kind of pick these 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 people out for uh, well, for 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 your movies? Redford um, sort of came with a project. Um, I that was a DreamWorks movie, and um, I just you know released a contender. The contender been Oscar nominated. It was successful for them, and Steven Spielberg and I got along very well. Um, he was, I'm very proud to say, for that short period of time, he was really kind of a mentor. And they had this script that had, they had had for a while called The Castle, and they thought that I was particularly well-suited for it, given my military background. Um, and they said that Redford was um, almost ready to do it. He just needed to be nudged by a director. And um, so they flew me to London to meet with, uh, to meet with Redford. Mm-hmm. And he was my hero, you know, first of all. All the President's Men, best American film ever made. Okay. He's also got The Sting. He's got The Candidate. He's got Butch Cassidy. And he directed some amazing movies, including Ordinary People and Quiz Show. And The Dude Founded Sundance. Guys are sure. a hero. Sure. And, and, I, and I go to London, and I have two very good meetings with him. And um, you know, I couldn't believe I was in a room with him talking about me directing this, uh, this icon. And it looked like... It was going. It was going really well. Um, there had been other actors connected to Clint Eastwood and Mel Gibson that had been, at some point, um, you know, put into that role. Um, but here, here we were with with Redford, and then um, the casting of Gandolfini. That took a while. You know, mm-hmm. um, we had other actors in mind for that role. I was pushing for Jimmy, and um, and you know, Sopranos was just sort of beginning its its heyday. Sure. And uh, by the way, you have not lived until you've been to clubs with Tony Soprano <laughs> in Nashville, where we shot that film. It, uh, it, yeah, was, sure. it was really, it was really amazing. And the casting of, um, you know, when when you're dealing with a studio like that, um, yes, as a director, as, yeah, but I'm more or less a neophyte director. Um, you know, I don't have a lot of power. I don't, you know, I cannot go. It's my way of the highway at all. Everything mm-hmm. has to be improved by Stephen, by Walker by Walter Parks, Lori McDonald, you know, people that were running the studio at, at the time. And I desperately wanted Ruffalo. I, I saw him in his Laura Linney film and um, and just thought he would be amazing in it. But again, you know, they were going for bigger stars. Yeah. You know, there, there were very big people involved. I, I guess now it's 20 years later, I can, I can tell you how, you know, we were talking to Mark Wahlberg, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but we couldn't make the deal because of money. And, Mm-hmm. Talking, talking to, to you know, to and he would have been great too, but I, I just love the the primal nature of um, of of Ruffalo, and um, he was playing going to play a West Point graduate, and I you know, I was I just saw him more that way than I saw any any other actor, and um, and eventually, you know, it the studio couldn't get the big stars, and so now we just went for the elite stars. And uh, and then they and then they pretty immediately agreed uh, agreed to, to Mark. Yeah. And you know, there, we also cast Robin Wright in the film. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Which was you know there was there were a couple of other bigger name actresses that were there, but they did, it was a one scene role and uh, they wouldn't do it because 
um, they want clauses in their contract saying that um, they could not be in the advertising. They didn't mm-hmm. want to. They thought it'd be better if they just show up. They don't want to be on any yeah. poster. They don't want to be on in the commercials. They thought that was uncouth. And um, and so we didn't get those bigger stars. So Robin, you know, you know, done the Princess Bride. She was somewhat well, somewhat well known, but somewhat. And yeah. um, and so so we got her in that role. And Clifton Collins auditioned. You know, he came in. You know, he plays a stutterer, and he came in stuttering, like mm-hmm. like as a human being. I'd never known him before, and so I thought he was just a stutterer and. Uh, and uh, when the audition was over and he was able to speak like a normal human being, that was, that was, uh, yeah. that was very cool. That was really yeah. cool. Uh, yeah. Like I said, great. It's, it's, hey, do you have, can I, can I ask uh, how it was to work with James Gandolfini? I mean, obviously one of like yeah. the great, you know, dramatic forces of the last 15 yeah, years was, before his untimely death. You the, know? the death was, uh, was a horror show for all of us who were his friend and, um, he, um, we were going to do Sacco and Vanzetti for HBO. I mean, yeah. he was going to produce. I was going to, I was going to direct it. Um, it was uh, it, it was wonderful working with uh, with Jimmy, who's very, very, very serious about the craft. And I've never been involved with an actor who has more ideas about staging than he does. Mm-hmm. You know, he said, "Okay, we want to get this point across. So why don't we do this?" and it was really very interesting. He, in many ways, is self-directed. You know, he he grasped the role very well. In that case, he went and he visited with actual wardens of uh, these military prisons. Came back with a whole bunch of ideas. But he was he he was not um, in any way um, um, e- egocentric. He was very willing to share this to share the screen. He was also. Um, uh, very self-effacing and, you know, knew what his physical deficiencies were and, you know, knew what his voice sounded like and was willing to play into that for the, uh, for the benefit of, of the character. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, there's this one very big speech, the shadow of a soldier speech that he gives in the film. And I cut it in half um, because I thought in the end it was a little bit repetitive. And um, we had a small, fracture in our friendship there for a few months because mm. you know he didn't like that it, that it had been that it had been taken out of um of the film but you know we all sort of what sort of reunited all of us was 9-11 because mm-hmm. the movie came out three weeks after 9-11 meaning it yep. was meaning it was doa because there's no marketing for it whatsoever and you had this anti-authoritarian film with that in the in the commercials you had two burning towers it was just not the film to release but yeah. we we got back together as as friends after that and, um and i miss him dearly he was a, a such an unbelievably generous man there's no such thing as having a meal with gandolfini where anybody but he paid and sometimes we yeah. pay for people in the restaurant it was just yeah it was just great just yeah great. he I, the one of the only people i've never heard about story about from anyone just no uh, it's it's yeah. and, and and you, you know you you think that he's a little bit like tony you know and um and tony soprano and he's yeah. he's not a tough yeah. guy he's a very very he was a very gentle guy like uh, once in a while on the set i would get a note from his or call from his manager saying jimmy's worried about this scene or that scene or doing this or doing that and i said well i'm gonna go talk i'm gonna go talk to him so i'll go to his trail and say jimmy go 
I heard from your manager. Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, he, you know, he, he just a gentle, wonderful um, guy. And uh, he learned how to play chess on the set of The Last Castle. And by the time we were done shooting, there wasn't anybody who could be nobody. Oh, that's interesting. Of, me yeah. included. I was, you know, a decent chess player. And uh, I thought yeah. I'd be able to hustle him. But uh, <laughs> no, that, that wasn't the case. Oh, that is that is interesting. What was so what what was that release actually like? Because I I mean I remember that you know uh, being a movie fan and also you know uh, after nine eleven just the the kind of um, the the almost empty sensation at the theaters. Just nobody nobody was going. Nobody was. It was, it you was know. just horrible, is what it was. And I uh, you know first of all nine um, eleven happens while I'm still doing sound work. And still putting in music, Jerry Goldsmith's music, um, which was created, Jerry's score, which is just gorgeous, was created on that day and inspired on that day. But, you know, nobody felt like working on certainly not on 9 11, not on 9 12, not on 9 13, and not for a few days. Yeah. And, but we had to continue working to make a release date. And we had had, uh, nobody knows us, we're giving an exclusive story here. We had had two, um, research screenings in San Diego. It was very cool. We had flown on the DreamWorks jet to get down there. And uh, we had, um, and, and but we always got the same score. It was always like 79% in the top two boxes. Jeffrey Katzenberg explained to me that if your lead character dies, spoiler alert, at the end of the movie, you can't get past an 80. Like yeah. Gladiator had an 80, Titanic had an 80. You know, that's the highest you can go. So 79 was very good. And we were tracking toward, um, we were tracking toward, you know, very strong opening weekend, you know, um, you know, it was very much an audience film, my first audience. Mm -hmm. And then after 9-11 occurs, I just figured, OK, well, we got to push this until next year, the following year. There's no way we can release it now. And I remember Walter Parks telling me, no, we're going to test the film. We're going to see we're going to see what's going on here. And. So we go to San Diego again and we screen the film and it comes back 79. <laughs> it's exactly the same score. Yeah. And, and I, and I, and a lot of the cards said patriotic and you know this and that, which it's not, by the way, I mean, it's not unpatriotic. It's just on, just on the point of the yeah. film, but I guess you see an American flag and you, you say patriotic immediately. And, um, but I knew that it was going to be a disaster to release it because it's one thing for people to comment about the film that they've seen. The question is, right. how are we going to get them to see this movie? There's just no way. People aren't going to go to the theater at all. They don't want to see a dark film at all, even if it's inspiring at the end. You know, they do, And they don't want to see anything that has a hint about the military one way or another, in my opinion. And yeah. I literally got on my hands and knees, as, and I mean literally, as a... It was a piece of showmanship with Walter and begged him not to release the film. But I think that uh, basically the, um, the the horse was out of the barn at that point. Um, yeah. It was booked in theaters. You couldn't unbook it. We, we There was no other place to put it. And it opened and it just yeah. it was shot down like a zero over the Battle of Midway. Yeah, I, and I'm sure they'd already done a ton of advertising spend and everything. You know, was, it, was, it was just yeah. it was just dead. And I remember getting on the press with on the phone with Walter and he said to me, um, I'm the director of this thing and the director gets too much credit 
and too much blame, mm-hmm. right? But the, he said to me, you know what? Everyone gets a pass. And I said, for now, but not in 10 years. In 10 yeah. years, I'll be the director of a film that, that you know, flopped at the box office. Although I must say that of all my films up until The Outpost, it was a film that more, most people have seen, and yeah. especially military people. Well, I mean, it's it's a I, this is I'll just tell you how I saw it. I did not see it in theaters. I saw it after the fact on HBO. It right. was on, uh, you know, H or Showtime or, you know, one of, one of the pay channels. And it was on a lot and it was on a lot because it was it's 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 a good movie. It's entertaining. Yeah. It's got big stars. It's got yeah. good acting mm-hmm. um, uh, and it and it works. Uh, so uh, can we uh, we're almost to the outpost. We'll be there yeah, in one no, second. But I just want. I want to talk. I want to talk a little bit about your TV career because you mm. you uh, you you created a couple of shows, Line of Fire, right. uh, Commander in Chief, um, and then you've also you've also done some work on just an episode by episode basis, like Hell on Wheels, right. the AMC uh, Western. And I I, I I wanted to get your take on the difference between those two roles as a as a creator and as as an executive. You know what what's it what is it like to be there making this thing happen. You're the guiding, driving force behind everything. And also just kind of coming in for a couple of weeks well, to shoot okay, an that, episode or two. That is a really fascinating topic, in, at, least, at least in my world. There is nothing better on earth than creating a TV series because you, you, know, like you create it out of nowhere, just like you, you would create a movie. And there's nobody with so much creative power as a, as a showrunner Except when you run into, you know, the heads of the network. Um, but um, it's just the most wonderful thing. I make all the decisions and, you know, usually consulting with people. I make the final, the final decisions, uh, you know, listen to the wise people around me. But in the end, it's, um, it, it, is, it is my show. And in the case of Commander-in-Chief, you know, we had Gina Davis, who's a wonderful star. And, and, you know, and, and I was getting to put on my political opinion. It was just so great. It was a huge hit until I got fired. And and, and so now the, the shows that I've gone on to, like Hell on Wheels and Damnation and a show called American Odyssey, those are the only three that I went on to, they all were based on relationships. Um, the, uh, the star of Hell on Wheels, Anson Mount, uh, was in Line of Fire, a good friend of mine. He said, if you want to come to Calgary, we'll have a great time. And We'll shoot this show, and and I went there, and you know the show was pretty deep into production at that point. And I think it had already done a season, and, mm-hmm. and you know, and and I just slipped right in, and you know, and they gave me the parameters, and um, I followed them, did the best of my ability, and we had a wonderful time, and I loved doing that show. It was one of the best experiences of my life because you know all the pressure was off me, but I could I could mm-hmm. nonetheless. Uh, create the the other um, the other two shows are not as happy experiences and I, and I'll and I'll tell you why um, I came on and I was first one up after the um, after the pilot director on Damnation and first one up after the pilot director on um, on American Odyssey mm-hmm. and in both those cases the shows are not yet. Um, fully formed. They, they haven't quite found their rhythm yet. They don't quite know what they want. Okay. And so now I find myself having, um, having to come up with, you know, a style or continue a style for, for the show. Um, and it often doesn't meet what's in the mind of the creators of the show. 
mm-hmm. it doesn't come into the mind of the showrunner. I don't understand the characters as well as the showrunner does, or, or and I don't understand the style of the show uh, as well as the showrunner does. And so it's you know you find yourself having a lot of a lot of conflict in that case, creative conflict, and not necessarily angry conflict, but you know, I, I sense disappointment from the uh, from the creators of, of the show because it's not exactly how they had it in their mind, uh, you know, and or not even close to how they had it in, in their mind. And and it, I don't even have that much guidance because they don't know what, the, what they necessarily want yet. And, you know, and we're talking about some really, really smart people on the, the show. I respect them um, immensely. Um, and I think that I ended up doing some really good work on those shows. But what I really discovered, and this will sound very arrogant, but I, I think if you just sort of parse it, it'll, it'll make sense. I'm a designer, not a tailor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? No, that makes sense. Yeah, and, sure. And and I, you know, when I'm on a show that is that unformed, I just have this instinct to go in there and and, and try to do my thing. And, you know, so I, I'm, I'm probably not going to do that again. Um, yeah, I just don't think I'm very good at it. Um, I mean, and, and again, the shows ended up being fine, but quite good, in fact. But not my best. Well, let me ask: Have you have you experienced that from the from the from the reverse view as the showrunner dealing with a, a director who it wasn't it wasn't working? They 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 did they weren't meshing with your view of what yes, was uh, and, supposed to be happening. Yes, and in both in both my shows, they only both, both lasted one season. And so by definition, we had neophyte directors. Now, I tended to direct a lot. You know, I, I just couldn't let mm-hmm. go. This, this was a flaw of mine, character flaw of mine, is that I just so fall in love with what I'm doing that I can't give it to anybody else. I need to do it myself. I don't trust anybody else. And I should have. I should have. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and sometimes, you know, I would get frustrated when, when a director would give me an episode that didn't quite fit what I wanted or I thought that they had fucked it up completely. And a couple of times we had to reshoot and I did the reshooting and, you know, I, I, and I think this probably is more, um, again, a, a flaw of my character, at least, at least back then. Um, when I do another TV series, I'm probably going to hand over the reins quite a bit more and not be quite so, not so micromanaging, not having to mm-hmm. every episode. Uh, but I just love it so much, Sonny, you know, yeah. it's, you know, I, I couldn't help myself, but I really have to help myself. Okay, that's it for this week's episode. Like I said, we'll be back next week with another episode uh, with Rod, the second half of this interview, uh, talking about The Outpost and kind of how that movie got made and why it is, uh, again, one of the definitive looks at the Afghanistan war from the cinematic perspective. Um, but come back next week. Really great episode. More more, more stuff to talk about with Rod, uh, and I think, you'll, I think you'll really enjoy it, okay? Uh, I am Culture Editor at The Bulwark. My name is Sonny Bunch, and uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll see you guys again next week.